Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double N. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 474 of the podcast and it is Friday 31st of January 2020 as I record this. (laughs) So today I'm talking with Jerry Williams, former FBI agent on myths and misconceptions about the FBI and also about how she started podcasting as book marketing but it has turned into far more than that. The true crime niche is the biggest in podcasting so she is definitely chosen a fantastic niche that also fits with her life purpose and her interest. And Jerry is brilliant fun and very knowledgeable, so I know you'll enjoy our conversation today. In my personal update today, I am celebrating and I'm probably going to have a glass of wine because I have just finished my narration for Audio for Authors. I will just edit the last chapters and send it off for audio mastering, which I am thrilled about. And what that means, because I've been, as I've been narrating, I've been doing a sort of final, you know, little change, change a word here, word there. So I was waiting until I finished my narration before I actually... Um, compile the print book together, do the little things that I do with print and send it over to my print book designer. So I'm in that. uh, I've moved into the final stages of the publishing process for audio for authors. Uh, The ebook is on pre-order for 6th of March and my goal is to get the audio book out as well as the paperback, large print and hardback editions as well. But the audio publication date is always in the lap of the audio gods (laughs) because even if you get it finished and then you upload it to the stores, it doesn't necessarily arrive when you expect it to. (laughs) So we shall see. I am really thrilled to have this almost done. It feels like an important project for me, uh, but I'm over it. (laughs) That's what always happens at the end. And this is important though, because finishing energy that the energy that goes towards these little cleanup pieces at the end of a project and, you know, the publishing very detailed bits and bobs. Uh, this is important because otherwise you can't get your books into the world and you have to have that finishing energy, that last push to see things through and, uh, yeah, just get it done. But what I am excited about is the turning of the creative uh, cycle. So as I finish one project, I can start on another one. So as I move into the final phase of publishing for audio, I can start on back on the first draft and I am going back to Map of the Impossible. So I did 15,000 words in NaNoWriMo and uh, I will be re- returning to Map of the Impossible and that is my February and March, yeah, pretty much February and March probably to do that. And then I'll have the trilogy done. So uh, I kind of know the ending and it's pretty epic. Uh, So I'm, yeah, I'm really excited about moving from this finishing energy into that starting energy and that, um, that there's all these different energies you need when you do this as a, as a, you know, for each project, you do need that starting energy, you need the creative energy. um, But then you also need to push through and the bits that start to (laughs) become a little bit annoying. (laughs) 
<laughs> so yes, very excited. So wherever you are on that creative cycle, think, okay, I'm looking forward to this bit or that bit, but also appreciate where you are. And it is all a cycle. As soon as one project is finished, you start again on the next one, if you're addicted to this process, as, as I clearly am. <laughs> Uh, on other things, I am, if you haven't had enough of me talking, I am on the Writers Inc. podcast talking about designing a career as an authorpreneur. And uh, Writers Inc., which is Jay Thorne and JD Barker, they have some really good guests on there. Uh, clearly, I'm one of them, but they have some um, pretty big name traditionally published authors as well. I am also on the Six Figure Author podcast talking about audio for authors and how to make multiple streams of income with nonfiction books. Now, I'm personal friends, like, you know, actual in real life friends with Jay Thorne, uh, Lindsay Broker, Andrea Pearson and Joe Lalo. And so I'm definitely able to share more personally with them than I do on many podcasts when, you know, I kind of don't know the the hosts, I don't know the audience. So if you want to listen to some pretty open conversations, check out the Writers Inc. podcast and the Six Figure Author podcast. Danielle says, commenting on last week's show about copyright, I am hopeful that AI will always be a supplement and not the main attraction for a literate population. Perhaps that is overly optimistic, but I think that people will always be in search of captivating human ideas. And uh, although I would love to <laughs> agree with you, I think that we're not going to be able to tell. After all, how many books do you read where you don't know the author? I would say the vast majority. You don't know who this author is. And uh even if you do know who they are or you've uh, seen a picture of them. I mean, most of most authors just do their thing and they don't put themselves out in public. So I don't think we would even know. And um, when publishers work out how to do this or when authors work out to do this, uh, do you think they will be shouting about what they're doing? I don't think so. In fact, I have had people uh, say to me when I talked about my AI translation project, they said, why are you talking about this in public? Why don't you just do this stuff and not tell anyone? Uh, and that's just not my nature. I, I like to do experiments and help you and talk about it because I think many many of you end up doing much better than I do in these areas. Um, but I feel like I'm a kind of crash test dummy <laughs> in some form. But I'm very curious, you know, I love to find out about these new things. But yeah, there's plenty of people doing stuff that they are not talking about <laughs> and doing very well. So I think uh, that's probably what will happen. But this will never impact the human need to create. So I see us all still writing books, still making music, still making art, doing all of this stuff. Um, but there will also be other things. So obviously more discussions on that to come. Chris said, brilliant and important podcast. Uh, that again was on the copyright one. I also enjoy the futurist part of the show. I'm curious to know if you've read Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff. Uh, yes, well, that is on my, I've got it on my um, audiobook list, but what happens... Um, it was shortlisted for the Financial Times Business Book of the Year. And what I do with the Business Book of the Year is I pretty much get uh, a number of those books. And for example, The Big Nine by Amy Webb is also on that list. And I've listened to that fantastic book, uh, which is also about AI. And right now, oh, I've just finished actually Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez, which actually won the award, which is on data bias. And that's fascinating. So I do have, I do have Shoshana's book, 
on my Audible, uh, but what has just raced to the top of my Audible list is Dear Life by Rachel Clark, which just has been, which was released today, I think. So that is... um, there. Uh, also, I don't, I think I've mentioned this. I, I literally can't remember what I say now on which podcast episode or whether it's in my audiobook or whatever. But I'm also listening to um, World War Z by Max Brooks, which if you haven't read the book, and I've read the book, seen the movie several times, and because oh, I love Brad Pitt. <laughs> but the book is nothing like the movie because you can't do the book in the way in in a movie sense because it is an oral history of the zombie war and the book is each chapter is a separate point of view character um reminiscing about their part in the war and it's it is basically a series of history interviews about something which obviously didn't happen uh but it is slightly freaking me out because it starts as a viral outbreak in a part of China. <laughs> so it's but it's a brilliant audiobook if you want a um a sort of immersive story that is designed for audio. I don't think Max Brooks designed it that way, but it's so good in audio. So that's World War Z uh, or World War Z for Americans by Max Brooks. A couple of other comments. David Cudd said, if you haven't looked at your local library app lately, please do. I found all these at the Creative Pen Books available on audio. Where shall I start? Thank you, David. And yes, please remember, and this I, we, we're starting a movement, people. We're starting a library renaissance for indies. Please go to your library. Um, doesn't have to be my books, obviously, uh, but anyone... Any indie who you know is published wide, go and uh, download their books if there's just an app like David mentioned uh, or order them or whatever. But we need to educate libraries around ordering indie books, especially with the paper checkout model, because they get books for cheaper. uh, The reader gets to read for free and we get a little bit of money. So, yes, libraries, I feel, are a good resurging uh, form of income. And Diana Gunn says, uh, getting caught up on the show, I'm so excited for AI to make it affordable for low-income authors to create audiobooks. I'm so glad you're excited, Diana. This is I feel that this is a renaissance for audio as well. Not only will it give us a new source of income, but it will make our books accessible to blind readers. Absolutely. And accessibility is fantastic. Uh, and I know people listening uh, have audio for accessibility reasons. But what this means is that the expansion of audio uh, into the mainstream as such means a lot more for everybody. So this is fantastic. Okay, so today's show is sponsored by Kobo Writing Life and I'll play a word from them in a minute. Just to say in terms of the publishing wide side of things, um, I continue to publish wide with KWL and I just checked my dashboard for January and I have sold books in 45 countries in January 2020 alone. So I was very always happy to see um, the interesting map. Uh, This type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time in creating the show is sponsored by my patrons. Thanks to everyone supporting the show on Patreon. Thanks to everyone who's been supporting the show for years, uh, but also to the new patrons patrons this week, Kelly McGonigal, Ingrid KV Hardy, Jessica Halsey, Michael Stubblefeld and Timothy Fay. I really appreciate your support on Patreon. Like the tweets and emails, it demonstrates you enjoy the show and want it to continue. You can support the show with just a couple of dollars a month or a couple of coffees a month if you're feeling generous and you'll get the monthly Q&A backlist. 
So yes, even more of me talking. <laughs> I think I think there's some pros and cons on that, but I I do I do giggle. Some some people have said that my audiobook narration is disconcerting because I don't giggle, and it's like, well, audiobook narration is a performance of a written work. You yes, you can go off piste and like talk about other things but that's not really the design of an audiobook especially if you want it to be whisper synced it's got to be exact whereas the podcast you know I do have some written notes but then I go off track like now and completely lose my place um yes so you can support the show at patreon.com p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen right here's a word from Kobo writing life and then we'll get on with the interview Hey, Creative Pen listeners, I'm Tara. And I'm Stephanie. From the Kobo Writing Life podcast. If you're a listener of the Kobo Writing Life podcast, we always ask our guests what they're loving lately. It could be a book, movie, or TV show. But here at Kobo Writing Life, we love to talk about metadata. And before you skip the next 15 seconds, good metadata can help an author sell more books. It's that easy. For instance, did you know that if you have a series published on Kobo, the series name and volume number fields are your best friends? Once a reader finishes a book in your series, they'll be automatically prompted to buy the next book in that series, as long as your information is linked in our system. To make sure it's linked, the series name should be exactly the same for all books. If you wanted to include a prequel or novella in your series, you can easily do that by adding 0, 0 0.5, or whatever number you would like. If I, a dedicated reader, have to go to your author website to figure out which book is next, you're doing it wrong. If you have a series, we hope that you have a box set too, because they're really popular with Kobo customers. There's no higher price cap on Kobo Writing Life, so you can price high and still receive 70% on each sale. And if you want to list the box set with the rest of your series, just include the same series name and leave the volume number blank. If you want to learn more about Kobo Writing Life, check out our blog, podcast, and find us on social. You can create your free account at kobo.com slash writinglife. Back to you, Joanna. Jerry Williams is a retired FBI special agent, crime writer, and true crime podcaster. She's also the author of FBI Myths and Misconceptions, a manual for armchair detectives. Welcome to the show, Jerry. Hi, I'm so glad to be here. This is exciting. Oh, no, it is. It's super exciting because everyone's like, ooh, ooh, FBI. <laughs> so start by telling us a bit more about you and your background in the FBI and in writing. Well, I was in the FBI for 26 years, and most of the time, uh, mo during most of that time, I was investigating economic crime, which is advance fee schemes and Ponzi schemes and business-to-business uh, -business telemarketing fraud. So all types of financial fraud. And I do not, I do not have an accounting background, but it was something that I learned on the job and that I absolutely loved. I was fascinated about the different schemes and scams that people would do to steal other people's money. And I'm still fascinated. And um, so what about writing? How did you decide to get into writing? Well, I have always been a book lover. I am an Air Force brat. And so my father traveled all, all around the world and dragged us along with him. Matter of fact, I lived for three years in uh, in England, outside of London and outside of Liverpool at different Air Force bases. Oh, and cool. yeah, and being the new person, I never was anywhere and the entire time I was growing up for more than three years. So we were always moving. Sometimes it was only a year or two. So we were always moving. And books became my friends. 
You know, books were something that were very familiar. And I read a lot of different books. But once I got into the FBI, of course, I started reading more crime fiction. And one day I just thought to myself, I can do this. And you know how they say, write the book that you want to read. And I was reading a lot of books, crime fiction. And whenever they had something about the FBI, you know, I would roll my eyes. It just, the jurisdiction was off. It just didn't work. And I thought, I can do this. I can, I can do this. And uh, so towards the end of my FBI career, I found a case that I thought was really, you know, a great case to start out on. And um, I started writing and I haven't turned back. Oh, which is fantastic. So let's let's start with a sort of uh, more of an existential question. Like, why are books and TV shows about the FBI so popular? And why why are we so obsessed with crime and law enforcement when most of us are very law abiding? <laughs> That's a good question. I think, you know, for the most part, when it comes to crime, people are fascinated because it really happens. And everybody hopes that it won't happen to them. And reading about it kind of helps to calm those fears. You know, you're, you're reading and you're learning how different people handle crime and, and what they do. And it almost kind of makes you think that you're preparing yourself for if something were to happen to you. So it kind of gives us, you know, that jolt of terror at the same time as you know, for most books, they resolve with some type of a really, you know, happy ending. And so you, you have an opportunity to look at crime that's happening, you know, on the news and, and for some people actually around them. And you get to feel in control of it because when you don't want anymore, you just close the book. Yeah. And I think that justice, you know, we hope in real life that there will be true justice, but often what we, people like, would rather the bad guys kind of die, which they do in the books. Oh, yes. (laughs) But in real life, that doesn't always happen, especially in that financial and economic crime. I mean, people just go into some nice, nice prison. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) White collar, white collar crime. But, um, you know, uh, let's, let's talk also uh, about um, the word special agent, because I think as someone who's British, this FBI special agent, it just sounds really, romantic's the wrong word, but it's a hell of a title. Like, yeah, is it? Like is, secret agent. Yeah, almost. it is. Like, <laughs> it is. It's a very special, it is a special title. So is there anything specific about that? Are there different levels? No, not really. Basically, you can work for the government, for the U.S. government, and you can become an agent of the government. But when you also have law enforcement responsibilities and you're allowed to, you know, say, carry a weapon and, 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 you know, and make arrest, then that gives you the special agent title. So secret service agents are special agents, uh, people who work for the internal Uh, Revenue Service, IRS agents are special agents. And so that's the distinction. You know, we all work for the government, but we have special and enhanced responsibilities having to do with law enforcement and the ability to make arrests. There you go. I did not know that. So that's yeah. fantastic. <laughs> um, so let's talk about the the, the misconceptions. Uh, let's, let's start with the types of cases, because, you know, generally it's sort of, um, you know, serial killers, terrorists, stuff that's all very dramatic. But so, so what are the types of cases? Yeah, definitely. Well, for most books, 
you know, about the FBI. They are about serial killers, profilers and serial killers and people, you know, thrillers with people chasing terrorists. And there's so much more that the FBI does. There's more than 200 different violations. And people are, of course, aware of organized crime and the different shows of the FBI investigating the mob or the mafia. Um, And, of course, nowadays, you know, there should be more books really about us investigating transnational gangs because they're really, when you talk about organized crime, you've got Russian organized crime and, you know, from from all different Asian organized crime. So it's really expanded. And the American uh, organized crime groups have really dwindled a lot because we've done a great job. <laughs> <laughs> but um, definitely white collar crime, the number one criminal priority of the FBI is actually public corruption. Actually, I have a funny story because when I was trying to, you know, get an agent to, um, to, uh, take on my book, I remember sending a query and a, my books are all about fraud and corruption. And I remember an agent sending an, uh, sending a letter back saying that, uh, you know, please check your uh, references because I really don't think the FBI would be interested in working a municipal corruption case. And I'm like, (laughs) "Uh, that's the only agency that really does that work. What do you, you know, it's like, what? So, (laughs) you know, it's kind of hard trying to talk about the FBI, FBI in an authentic way when there's so many misconceptions about uh, what we do. Mm. What 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 about? So you said there two hundred violations. So those are violations of the legal code, yes. in, in some way. Are there any? I mean, you've mentioned a few there, but any other sort of unusual ones that people uh, might not know? Well, crimes against children. So so much of this online predators and human tra- human trafficking, and you know, kidnapping, parental kidnapping. All of that is, uh, you know, under the FBI's jurisdiction. I talked about transnational gangs. Um, There's also, of course, all types of of frauds and kidnapping and uh, drug investigation, narcotics, health care fraud. It is just amazing the variety of assignments under the FBI's jurisdiction. And the main thing I always like to tell people the FBI and the police are the same, except very different. And that's because there are things that people try to, to say that the FBI is responsible for. And I know, especially in a lot of true crime and crime fiction, why don't the FBI, you know, why don't they call in the FBI? Why doesn't the FBI do it? But we do have this jurisdiction. And one of the biggest things, and I think, misconceptions for crime writers is that the FBI is involved or investigates murder. And we do, and we don't. Um, So a local murder, the FBI is not going to be involved in that. We have no jurisdiction whatsoever. That's under the police, the state, local um, police. It's not an FBI matter. When the FBI is called in, maybe the murder ended up being a murder for hire and the husband hired somebody in Texas to come to Pennsylvania. Now 
it's becoming an FBI matter because of the interstate jurisdiction aspect of it. Uh, that's really interesting because I actually wrote down here, where's the line with the police? So that that does sound like a line. And that's really important for people writing books. Oh, it's because- absolutely important. And it's one of the reasons why when I'm reading somebody's crime novel and they start, because, you know, so much, so many crime novels have murders. And so if it's a murder in the FBI, that's when I'm like, oh, God, they got this wrong. And they could have... <laughs> I could have been able to show them or another agent tell them how to make it right. But this is so wrong. Why are we, why is the FBI there? (laughs) Why are they even there? Whereas in reality, the police would have been there. And then it's the police who would call the FBI, is it, when they realize that it's another jurisdiction? That, and and some type of violent crime, yes, that, that would be the case. And even in serial killings and serial murders, in most cases, the local law enforcement needs to invite the FBI in. So say they have some serial murders that they are unable to solve and, you know, they're, but they're local, you know, they're local murders, but there's a number of bodies that keep showing up. The only way that the FBI can become involved in that investigation is under the invitation of that local department. We need help. We need assistance. We'd like to use your resources and your, um, you know, your, your, your different technologies to try to solve this particular murder. And in many cases, what looked like a local serial murder may actually become much, much more than that, because we find out through databases, et cetera, one, one of them is called VICAP, the violent crime. Uh, oh, no, I just forgot. <laughs> I'm sure we can Google that. <laughs> yeah, you can Google it. But it actually, you input murders and and missing persons and unidentified uh, human re- remains into this database. And so you may find out that um, what they're investigating in Denver has is very similar to what happened in Minneapolis and they they start to work together and see that there is a you know a serial murder and in that situation that's where the FBI would be brought in because the main difference between the FBI and a local police department is that we have national jurisdiction as right. an FBI agent if I'm assigned in Philadelphia where I spent most of my career and there's something going on in, well, I'll pick another state, Florida. I like Florida. <laughs> you know, I can just pick up and go. I can take my weapon with me. With me, I, You know, when I get to the airport, I just have to show my identification and fill out some forms. But I can hop on that plane and go to Florida with my gun and investigate. And I don't have to ask anybody any permission except for the head of the office in, in Florida, the head of the FBI office in Florida. But a police officer can't do that. Right. So, and, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So so there's a big tip for people writing. If you want to write an FBI book, you need to have a national, some kind of crime that is national rather than just local. Well, it can, it can be local. So like, say, a, a drug investigation, um, there are many cases... Hmm. Yeah. So murder. Yes, definitely murder. It has to be, there's got to be some type of interstate uh, aspect to it, or it has to, and this is the trick, it has to affect interstate commerce. And Uh so if you have a gang that is, 
you know, obtaining their drugs from, say, Mexico or California, and they're operating in Philadelphia. I can work on that case in Philadelphia because the trafficking of drugs and the transferring of drugs affects interstate commerce. And so that's where the FBI gets their, their authority to work those type of cases. Mm, wow, that's super interesting. And I guess one of the other misconceptions, having it could be again because I'm British, all I see of the FBI really is um, TV. Although I did go on a thriller fest thing uh, to the FBI ah, office. Mm-hmm. <laughs> one did you day. do that? I did, and it was they were quite they were quite typical to be honest. They were they were <laughs> white men wearing dark suits and kind of earpieces. Um, but are all the you know are all the agents drunk, dysfunctional? You know, is it like the TV or what are the people like in the FBI? Oh my God, no! <laughs> I think I think that you may be getting us mixed up with the cliche and misconception about Secret Service agents. Unfortunately, <laughs> for Secret Service agents, there has been some scandals where they've been overseas and they've been partying and drunk with prostitutes. That is not the FBI's <laughs> cliche. <laughs> no, you're right. I've been right. watching Men in Black. That's clearly <laughs> it. <laughs> what I can tell you that the misconception about FBI agents and their persona is that we're dry, unemotional, no sense of humor, basically a body in a suit. And that is not true either. I mean, I mean, FBI agents are, are, (laughs) are fun people. I'm fun. (laughs) Uh, So that's not true either. So the being drunk and, and, and partying is not true about the secret service, but I still would rather they have that misconception and that cliche than us. <laughs> I guess it, I guess it's more that um, when we write characters in books, uh, the character has to have a flaw. And FBI agents or agents in general tend to have dysfunctional families or, you know, some kind of emotional wound, which I guess is true of every human being. But um, you know what I mean? Like these are some of the things we write in our, oh, in our books. Oh, absolutely. I think for for almost all crime novels, when you have a law enforcement officer, whether he or she is an FBI agent or a police detective, you know, there tends to be a flaw. Um, a lot of times it is that they're, you know, that they're drink too much or, you know, that they're womanizers. I know for my own character, you know, I have her you know, with a very painful past, uh, you know, some kind of hashtag me too moments that make her very vulnerable to, uh, the first case that we introduce in the book and, and, and having to deal with that is her flaw. So yeah, we, we do create flaws for most of our crime fiction, uh, characters, but, you know, I'm hoping that people will start to innovate that and and pick up on some things that are normal in any type of fiction. You know, family issues, FBI agents, many of them, you know, transfer around a lot. And so, of course, that creates tension um, mm. in, in the family. So there's, there's other ways of creating those flaws. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, I have to ask, what really happens at the FBI Academy? <laughs> Well, whatever you saw on the TV show Quantico, nothing like that. I haven't like seen that. that. Oh, oh nothing like that. 
<laughs> oh, Quantico was a big, big hit a couple of years ago. And it actually had three seasons, but the first season actually took place at the FBI Academy as this group of brand new agent trainees went through the academy and they were, you know, hooking up with each other and, you know, sabotaging each other and they were spies and, you know, moles. And it was really exciting, but none of it was true, especially the part about the low cut, you know, very tight fitting, revealing outfits that all of the female trainees wore. Uh, That's not true either. (laughs) So it was, it was an interesting show. i didn't give it a total thumbs down because I thought at the time that was um, it was really introducing a whole new generation of people to the FBI, uh, you know, allowing them to look at the FBI as a diverse organization that, you know, did so many different things uh, as far as investigation. So people were able to learn some good information about what the FBI does. But when it came to who the FBI is, you know, a bunch of sex craved, you know, good looking, (laughs) you know, uh, young uh, people, that wasn't necessarily authentic. Yeah. So, so what are the things that they cover at the Academy? All right. So the Academy really is three different training functions. You know, you're, you're going to go there to learn about the FBI procedures, the, the legal training, you know, what you can do and can't do as far as arrest and search warrants and interviews. Then you're also going to get all of your firearms training. You know, people can come in there never having shot a weapon before in their life and come out of there as a, a marks, uh, you know, marks person, you mm-hmm. know, really being able to, <laughs> you know, get those, that bull, perfect bullseye. Uh, so you're, you're trained there in the uh, pistol, semi-automatic pistol, and you're also trained in the rifle. And so that's a, a huge aspect of training because FBI agents, you know, do carry weapons, uh, when you're on duty all the time, you have your weapon. And yes, just like on TV, you know, we do. We've all had that opportunity to pull them out and point them at people and say, stop FBI. Um, you know, it's breaking down those doors. That That's all a reality. And the third part of training is the physical fitness, just making sure that you're in the best physical fitness uh, shape that you have ever been in. As a matter of fact, even before you become an agent, before you're actually hired, they do give you fitness tests. So you're already you already better be fit before you you know apply for the FBI because they're going to be you know testing you on that. And if you don't fit uh, or you don't pass the, at least the minimum uh, fitness test, then you're not even going to be able to begin training. But uh, the training continues with uh, more so the defensive tactics. So you might do boxing and martial arts just to, to help you when you get into a uh, situation that you know what to do and, and, and how to handle yourself. Mm. And then as... Um you, someone like you who did financial crime, economic crime, which, you know, you'd expect less sort of fisticuffs <laughs> with that kind of crime. Did, did you, do you have to keep up all of that, you know, shooting training and physical training and go Absolutely. back to sort of refreshes? Yeah. So four times a year, 
FBI agents have to qualify, requalify with their weapon. So we have to go out on the range and we have to shoot and you have to get a qualifying score or else, you know, you, <laughs> you know, you might have your weapon taken from you. And the same thing, you know, for physical fitness, their test. I don't know if it's once a year or twice a year, you're given a physical fitness test, you know, running and sit-ups and pull-ups and all of that stuff in order to try to, you know, maintain your physical fitness. Of course, you know, once you get out in the field, there are different expectations depending on your age because, (laughs) you know, somebody right out of Quantico who's, you know, 28 years old cannot be, um, you know, you can't expect that person uh, who is now, you know, in their, in their uh, early fifties to, to test the same way. But yeah, you have to keep it up. And the one thing that I like to stress to people, although, you may be assigned to do to an economic crime squad at any time during the day. You could be called out to assist on any squad. And so, uh, you know, just because you're not you're you're working a case that most most of the time, you know, takes place on paper. That doesn't mean that tomorrow the drug squad isn't going to be taking down you know, 30 individuals and you are assigned as the team leader to go into a particular house and arrest a drug dealer. I mean, I've done that. I've been, you know, that's been my assignment. Uh, Not only was I in the Philadelphia office, but Philadelphia covers the Camden, New Jersey area. And at one point, Camden was the murder capital of the of the United States, so they had mm. so many murders and 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 drug related uh, uh, assaults that you know it it got that wonderful title. And so during the three or four years that I worked in the Camden office, I went out on every single drug arrest there was. Um, usually, uh, you know, after we kicked in the door and started the arrest, I was the one who helped the, uh, the, the female arrestees, uh, strip, I strip searched them, uh, you know, and, mm. uh, uh, helped them put on their clothes before we took them off to jail. Because when you arrest somebody and you take them to jail, they don't like it when you, <laughs> you don't, stri- you don't search somebody and you, and you hand them over somebody who has a weapon or drugs on them. So, yeah, I got to do all of that. So, you know, even though I worked white collar and economic crime, that doesn't mean that, you know, I, I, I wasn't getting down and dirty. And the fact that every other agent who, you know, has these what they, you know, look like soft and cushy assignments that they're not going to be called out to, uh, you know, to, to do the, the fun action stuff either. Mm, and I guess also the the dangerous stuff. So there's kind of pros and cons there. But when, I guess when we well, write, you know what, white collar yeah. crime can be dangerous too. When you have a person who considers themselves to be, you know, a um, a titan, a business, you know, leader, and they have this huge reputation, and they believe that they are, you know, uh, invincible, and you have an FBI agent coming to arrest them to take away their freedom. Um, That is not necessarily somebody who's going to go down easy either. You know, mm, I guess they can afford to pay for the bad guys. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so just on that, it just reminded me: is is the TV show Billions? Is is the, is that the FBI versus the um? Or is that the? 
Just, have you seen that? That's a no. I know what you're talking about, but I've never watched the show. Oh yeah, there's people listening now who can't talk to us who like <laughs> know what. The, I think it might be the district attorney, not the FBI, because I think it's a New York State thing. But that's when you talk there about the sort of you know the the, the billionaire perhaps doing something wrong, <laughs> being yes. taken down. Yeah. It, it, so we do have some dramatizations of that of that um, kind of thing. Um, okay, so I also wanted to ask, because obviously I'm in the UK, many of my listeners are international. Uh, do the FBI get involved with international cases? I mean, you mentioned transnational crime, um, but is there any international involvement? Absolutely. I think people would be surprised to hear that the FBI actually has 60 overseas offices and cover about 180 different countries. And so most of these offices are located at the U.S. embassy or a a U.S. consulate. And it usually has maybe two or three agents, but we're working with our law enforcement partners and security personnel and as many countries as um, you know that there, there are in order to uh, fight crime, because crime is global now. You know, with the internet, you know, crime is definitely global, and you know, something that affects Americans here ca- can initiate overseas. And so, we're working with our international partners all the time. There is something called. Um, Oh no, I'm just going to forget the name of it. Just like that, but we we have a, a a jurisdiction that allows us to work overseas cases, but we can only work them at the invitation of those countries. So it's just like somebody from you know the UK can't come over here and start investigating and arresting people. Well, we can't do that either. So everything we do is with a with a um. Uh, with the blessings of not just the host country, but even with our State Department, who are in charge, who actually manage our overseas offices. So, uh, but yeah, the FBI is working uh, so many other cases on an international level. And and would that be cases uh, in a, in the UK, say that impact Americans or have been crimes committed by Americans? Both. And right. and most, yeah, both. So in most cases, there might be something, maybe somebody, um, you know, a British person was here and they um, perpetrated a fraud and now they've gone back to, now they've gone back to England. And so we're working with, uh, you know, the, the officials um, to try to find out who that person and do the investigation. But we may also have somebody here, an American who's who's gone, uh, you know, who's doing it, committing a crime and we're working, you know, with the officials uh, overseas. And uh, so it's, it's both ways. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're assisting other law enforcement agencies, international law enforcement agencies in cases that they're working with um, uh, against Americans. And of course, we're also, um, you know, reciprocating and, and, and assisting them. Mm, no, fantastic. And then uh, we've talked about quite a few shows, I guess, but are there any good TV shows or movies um, or, I guess, uh, books, <laughs> apart from your own, obviously, that you think do portray the FBI in, in an appropriate way? Uh, absolutely. So one of my favourite shows is Mindhunter on Netflix. Oh, right. 
I think they do that so well because pro FBI profilers and serial killers is almost always portrayed incorrectly. You know, they have the FBI profilers out there in the field making arrests and doing investigations. And for the most part, profilers are more like consultants. And so if you have an FBI agent in the field or detective in the field and they have a hard to solve case, they may contact the FBI profilers who are stationed in at the FBI Academy in Quantico and say, hey, look, here's my whole file. Can you kind of help me figure out what type of person would do this crime? You know, what am I looking for? Can you help me connect the dots? And that's what they do. Sometimes they go out to the field and interview people, you know, again, the detectives to try to get an idea of what's missing, you know, what, what they haven't, I'm sorry, I'm hitting my microphone, um, <laughs> what they haven't, you know, what, what they've missed in looking at this case, but they're not investigating the case. You know, there is already a case agent. There's already a detective that is investigating the case and they're helping out. And in mine hunters, they show it correctly. Matter of fact, last season was about the Atlanta child murders. Uh, you know, they were investigating Wayne, Wayne Williams. And what they were able to show is that there was already a case agent in Atlanta working the case, but our two profilers in the TV show went down to assist and help them figure out who was committing these murders. And so I was really, really pleased with that show. I absolutely loved it. Another one uh, that I really loved was The Looming Tower that was on Hulu. Did you see mm -hmm. that? I didn't, That, but that was about pre-9-11, wasn't it? That's correct. Mm -hmm. And that was just so well done. They actually used the real names and portrayed real FBI agents who had worked uh, on that case, Ali Soufand and John O'Neill and, and a host of other agents. Um, but it was done, it was done very, very accurately. Of course, there was a big scene at the end of the movie where they were running through Yemen and bombs were, you know, blowing up and people were being killed and that didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a creative compromise that I understand and to, to keep the action going and to put interest. But the relationships between the agents, the relationships between their loved ones, the relationship between the FBI and the CIA, you know, all felt really, really real. I, I, I really enjoyed that show. Mm, no, that's fantastic. Right. We, we don't have much time left, but I did oh, want to no. just, yeah, I know we could talk for ages, but um, I also want to uh, switch gears a little bit because you have a true crime podcast, which is one of the biggest niches for podcasts in the USA. And I note that you have some big download numbers, uh, which is fantastic. So I wondered, like, how does the podcast play into your book marketing? Well, the podcast initially was all about the book marketing. And so I, at the time I started the podcast, I still had an agent. I was um, with Curtis Brown, uh, which is uh, one of the biggest literary agencies uh, in, the U in the U.S. and in the U.K. Um, so I had an agent uh, and you know, one of the things that he was asking me to do while he shopped the book around was to start building a profile. And I thought, well, I don't want to blog. And I thought I was listening to podcasts and I said, you know what? I can do a podcast because the last 
four or five years of my FBI career, I switched from investigations and became the spokesperson for the Philadelphia office. And in that role, I was dealing with the media on camera locally in Philadelphia, which is a huge media market. I think it's the fourth largest media market in the the U.S. But I was also doing, you know, national TV shows, um, you know, Discovery Channel and uh, American Greed and things like that. And so I was used to speaking, public speaking, and I knew all of these agents. And I thought, I'll do a podcast and my niche will be that I will only interview FBI agents. I decided to just interview retired agents because I didn't want to have to go through the hassle (laughs) of having to go through headquarters. I mean, uh, the FBI is a bureaucracy, so I I didn't want to have to deal with that. And with retired agents, we have the flexibility of of doing interviews and, and, uh, you know, conducting, uh, you know, speeches and presentations without having to get, get um, you know, in general, mm. a clearance from the F, uh, from FBI headquarters. And so I started doing that just as a way to introduce myself, to build um, uh, an authentic profile as a retired agent, and to hopefully, in building a true crime audience, also try to find people who were interested in reading crime novels. Uh, at the end, you know, I did not, uh, my agent did not sell my book. And because of shows like yours, I decided to step into uh, self-publishing and independent publishing. And I am so glad I did. And so now I'm I'm just about ready to, to um, I'm working on my, my third crime novel. And the podcast has definitely helped me market my book. Oh, good. Because I know how much work it is. Um, but as you say, because you've had some media training, you know, did, did you find any challenges in, in the podcast? Or are you just a natural? <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't call myself a natural, but, you know, the the two, I think there were two reasons that I think I did pretty well starting out, uh, starting out the gate. And, and that was I did, you know, have some media and, and spokesperson training and in that sense. And also I'm a pretty confident person. You know, I think that comes from being an Air Force brat and having to move so often that, you know, I can just put myself out there. Um, I'm not, I can't, I'm not going to say I'm not nervous in some situations, but who cares? I don't care if I'm scared or I'm nervous. I, I do it anyway. And so I just decided I was going to do a podcast and I just started it and just kept on going and reaching out to agents. So now I've interviewed, I think the next time it'll be a, my 190, 192 episodes. So, you know, these are agents from who have worked all different type of cases, many of them the most major, biggest cases that the FBI has ever done. So wait, tell us the name of the podcast. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, that's a good thing, Miss Marketing, <laughs> Miss Spokesperson. It's FBI Retired Case File Review. And of course, you can get it wherever you get your, you know, listen to audio. Yeah, but, wherever uh, you're listening to this. <laughs> yes, yeah, you, you can listen to that. And yeah, I've been really lucky. Um, it is doing quite well. I just reached uh, 3 million downloads, uh, you know, after I've been doing it for four years, 192 episodes, 3 million downloads. And I think this year is going to be one of my biggest years. I think I'm going to really increase my 
listenership uh, even more because now I'm I'm doing CrimeCon. Have you heard of CrimeCon? No. CrimeCon. Yeah, CrimeCon is the it's like Thriller Fest but for true crime aficionados and it's the biggest crime true crime related convention conference in the world and it's going to be big and it's the happiest place in the world in in orlando Orlando this year (laughs) well it's funny because i i was at uh, in orlando at the podcast movement last year and they were saying the the stats on true crime podcasting is incredible so um i'm quite jealous of your numbers because i'm at four million downloads and i've been doing this a decade so like and this is part of the niche and this is fantastic because it's so easily measurable is that the niche for true crime is is huge. So huge. yeah, this is a fantastic niche. So I, I wanted to point this out to people that it's not just that you started a podcast and that you know a bit about what to do. It's that you're in a niche that is hugely in demand. And it's a niche that not many people could, uh, you know, could venture into. Um, the fact yeah, that in I an am authentic a re- way. Yeah. yeah. Well, and also because I'm a retired agent, I have access to the retired agent directory. And so I could reach out and, you know, talk to these agents and try to convince them to come on. Not everybody wants to come on the show, but I, you know, I have access to retired agents. I, I have friends who suggest people. And so that helps a lot. But before we go, I do want to talk a little bit more about content marketing because I, I I Mm -hmm. really think this is a great subject. And I know so many people who have podcasts who think they're going to make tons of money from podcasting and you have to have a product or something that you're, that you're, you're selling. You can't necessarily make a lot of money just by taking in ads. I have no ads on my show. I will never have ads on my show uh, because I consider my podcast now, in addition to be content marketing for my books, but also a mission. It's my mission to show the public who the FBI is and what the FBI does, because there's so much information out there, not just what you see on TV, books, and in movies, but what's happening in the news. And I I do not get political on my podcast, but my goodness, there are so many misconceptions and cliches, and I have to say lies that are out there about the FBI. And so I give people an opportunity to judge for themselves. They listen to the stories. I let the case reviews speak for the FBI. Mm. And I think that's great because what you've said there and the fact that you've been doing this now for four years is the same as I feel, which is the podcast is part of my creative body of work. Yes. It's, you know, it starts out as book marketing, but it, it's for you as well. It's become much, much bigger. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so people who are, you know, they have their books and they're looking for ways to marketing. If you're thinking about doing a podcast, it is not as easy as it looks. Would, you, would sure. you agree? Yeah, would you? Oh, agree? that's for sure. But it's but it's also incredibly rewarding. And of course, I get to talk to people like you, and you get to talk to people like you've got on your show. So, um, you know, that's partly why we do it too. It's yeah, quite cool it's, to it's, talk about this stuff. Yeah. Matter <laughs> of fact, like some of the things that I get to do, like I talked to a former deputy director of the FBI. The only person higher than him would have been an FBI director. And I did that last month. Uh, And John Pistol, who was also the administrator for TSA, 
I would never have had an opportunity probably to speak to him if it wasn't for this podcast, you know, mm. so it's, uh, it's, it really is very rewarding and it has to be because it's hard work. Definitely. Well, look, it's been so, so interesting to talk to you, Jerry, and definitely get people to check you out. So where can people find you and everything you do online? On my website, it's Jerry Williams. That's J-E-R-R-I williams.com. And you have everything there. It's uh, I love my homepage because it shows you my books. It shows you my podcast and it shows you my FBI blog where I review lots of TV shows and movies for what they get wrong and what they get right about the FBI. So jerrywilliams.com. Brilliant. Thanks so much for your time, Jerry. That was great. Thank you. It's great speaking to you. So I hope you found the discussion with Jerry interesting today and perhaps it gave you some story ideas or maybe some ideas for book marketing. In the next show, I'll be talking about writing nonfiction and repurposing your content with Amy Woods, who runs a company helping entrepreneurs repurpose into multiple formats. So a blog post to a podcast or a video and social media stuff. But we also talk about some of the challenges she has faced in getting her first nonfiction book out into the world as an independent. So it's a really interesting uh, interview. So happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time. <laughs>